Hello again. How many of you realize that uh, at times I tend to be a little bit controversial? <laughs> did, did anybody get that here? Okay. Yeah. Every, every once in a while, uh, you know, tend to be a little bit on the outside of what mainstream Christianity is saying. But I'm assuming that's why, why you're all here, because you're not bothered by that sort of thing. And uh, I got a letter that... Um, that just kind of kicked me over into wanting to talk about a certain subject uh, this morning. And last week, we talked about New Year's resolutions and the fact that none of us in here make any, which is a good thing, I suppose, uh, because they're so hard to keep. But what we were talking about is the reason that resolutions are hard to keep is that they're not just an intellectual decision. You can't just say you're going to do it and it gets done. It's a change in lifestyle. It's a full change in the way that you do life. If you're really going to do the things that most resolutions are about, they're things that can't be transferred to us. We can't buy them. We can't just will them. We actually have to show up day after day and do them until they get pounded so deep down into our souls and our spirit that we are them, basically. We are that change that we're looking for. And we equated that to following Jesus, Because following Jesus is like that. It's not just an intellectual decision. It's not just something you say you're going to do. It's something that you have to show up for. It's like a marriage. You say, I do on the first day. But if you don't say, I do every single day after that, you're saying, I don't. You know, human relationships never stay static. If they're not moving closer together, they're moving further apart. I mean, just take that to the bank and know that this is the way that we're wired. And so following Jesus is just like a New Year's resolution in that we have to keep showing up day after day and recommitting ourselves to just doing the simple things. Now, it does get easier. You know, I love the, Im- the uh, image of the tightrope walker. You know, we're marveling at what they do, but they've done it so much. Their muscles are so attuned. They do it as easily as we walk across the room. But it's still balance, constant balance, constant checking, and everything that they do to be able to do that. We will do, but we'll do it with ease after a while. And so I get this letter. And the letter was saying that uh, from a friend of mine who um, who's much more conservative than I am, but he read the book, Daring to Think Again. And he said, oh, beautiful writing. I really loved it. And I can see how it makes people want to be saved. But for the life of me, he said, I can't see where you tell them how to attain salvation. <laughs> and so this idea of salvation, you know, comes up over and over again. Uh, I, I suppose it's because since I veer so far to the side of God's love and that non-fear of relationship with God, non-fear of punishment in relationship with God, that in more conservative minds, it really calls into question whether I have the fullness of the gospel and this idea of salvation. How do you attain salvation is the question that was being asked. And this was a book that was about following Jesus. Daring to Think Again is about following Jesus. And the fact that in order to do that, you have to let go of everything. Jesus says, sell everything that you have. You have to let go of it all so that you can be completely focused, committed, and you can drop down to this level of the anavim. We talked about that Hebrew word before. The, the, the people who are marginalized, the people who are poor, but have internalized the attitude of poverty. They're still grateful. They realize their dependence. They realize their status in life, but they're still grateful and they're still connected. And their status has wired them now 
to rely solely on God. They realize they can't by, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They need to rely on God. This is the condition that Jesus talks about. He calls it Talia, which is the child or the bondservant. This is the condition from which we can move into kingdom. This is the condition from which we will really understand our relationship with our Father in heaven. It transforms us. It changes everything. Without that poverty of spirit, like he says in the first beatitude, without that type of attitude inwardly, we can't go where Jesus goes. We cannot follow him there. And so the question, I suppose, is, is that any different than salvation? So my friend reads the book, he sees all this, and he says, this is, this is great, but what about, that? what about closing the deal, I suppose, would be one, one way to look at it. And that's a legitimate question. Is following Jesus the way I have described it, the way I believe Jesus has taught it to us, the same as salvation? You know, can, can we make that, that kind of, of connection? Now, I know that the reason my friend didn't see the attainment of salvation, or the, uh, I guess the, the call to salvation, that, that closing of the loop, is because of what Paul wrote in Romans, right? Let's take a look. This has been kind of a benchmark for the church for 2,000 years. At Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Very simple, very straightforward. You know, kind of unambiguous in terms of just reading that one-liner there. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, and you will be saved. Two things that you got to do. But then look what he says in Ephesians 2, starting at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And if that wasn't confusing enough, look what he says at Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay. Now, is it just me, or is there a little bit of seeming contradiction going on here? What is it? Are there two things that we need to do that are clear and unambiguous? Or is it just a gift of God and there's nothing that we can do? Or is there something that we're supposed to be working out with whatever fear and trembling means? See, this is the, the problem is that when we look at the scriptures, especially when we look at just these one-liners right here, it is very difficult in the English for us to be able to synthesize what's going on and to understand what is this real connection with salvation. How do we make sense of it? And and the, the truth is we always have to start in context. The context is always going to be what's going to be telling us what's going on. If we just read the one-liner, it can mean a number of things. But when you put it back into where it actually lives on the page, and sometimes it's not just the paragraph in which it sits. It can be the paragraph before or after. It can be the whole chapter. It can be the chapter before and after. We need to look at the context to see what is going on because so often what happens is you take one line like that, its definition or the understanding of how the author meant that line is within that section, that passage. So as we take a look at something a little bit larger, maybe we can start to figure this out. Now, Ephesians 2 is pretty unambiguous. That's the one who says that we're just saved by, by grace through faith. Right? And if you read all the, uh, 
the surrounding passages, nothing changes the meaning of that. That's pretty clear, right? Now, when you look at Romans 10, that looks pretty clear too. But if it's in contradiction with Ephesians 2, we have to figure out what's going on because something's got to give. There aren't supposed to be contradictions in the scriptures. And if there are, it means that we just haven't read through enough. I've found that all the seeming contradictions that I've found are, are, are resolve themselves when we get back into context and especially when we put it back into a Hebrew frame of mind. And so here we are. We're trying to figure out, we've got Ephesians 2, now we've got Romans 10, and we're trying to figure out how we're supposed to understand this. First of all, if we look at salvation itself, we need to look at it from a Jewish point of view. Paul and his writings survive in Greek, and so we think of him as more of a Western man. He writes much more in a Western style, certainly than Jesus. Jesus didn't write anything that we know of, but the words that are attributed to him are much more Eastern in their style. Paul is speaking to a Western audience. He looks Western. He sounds Western. There's logical arguments there. there. There's structure there that we can hang a church on, which is why the church has spent so much more time with Paul than it really has with Jesus in terms of structuring the institution of the church. But Paul was a Hebrew. Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees by his own admission. He was schooled in the Pharisaical schools. And he understood the world through that Jewish worldview. And so if he uses a word like salvation, and especially if he's using it to Jews and doesn't redefine it, then it's going to be understood the way the Jews understood salvation. And Jews don't think about the next life. Jews think about this life. They don't even have a doctrine about the afterlife. We've said that many times, but it bears repeating. We have to really understand that. Because when we're thinking of salvation, we're thinking of entrance into heaven and acceptance by God in the next life, right? And the avoidance of hell. When a Jew thinks of salvation, they're thinking of spiritual liberation right here and right now. They're thinking about a transformation, a deliverance from fear that allows them to be able to be completely present completely open and connected to their God and to each other. The freedom from fear that allows this kind of relationship, the deliverance from evil, as Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, is another way of saying the same thing. To be delivered from evil, to be delivered from sin, the missing the mark of unity, and the sinful behavior that always comes from the fear always comes from feeling that, that emptiness, that, that aloneness, and trying to fill those holes. To be free from all of that, to be completely connected, to know that everything is going to be all right, to have that assurance. How did Job have that assurance when everything was going wrong in his life? Not to curse God, to stay pat. When everybody, including his wife, was telling him, get over it, and he wouldn't do it. Where does that kind of conviction come from? It comes from the deliverance. It comes from being saved from everything that would divert or distract. That's the idea of salvation to a Jew. When Jesus uses the word, when Paul uses the word, that's what we need to understand. And it's the same thing with kingdom. It's here and it's now. And it's the quality of life of being in this state of fearless vulnerability, still able to be open, still able to be transparent, still able to be hurt, but fearlessly. 
the image of Jesus on the cross, completely vulnerable, dying, mocked, and yet fearlessly able to continue to love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How many of us could be that generous under those conditions? How many of us could be that generous under much less conditions, right? It's so hard to be able to do that. That is the salvation. That is the deliverance. All right? So when Paul is talking here about these actions, these prerequisites to salvation, let's dig in a little bit and take a look at Romans 10, starting at verse 5 now, to get into the context. That's in your, um, in your handouts, and I know that Brendan, Brendan is going to put it up on the screens, um, so you can take a look there. But just so that you know, the whole point of the entire chapter, actually the whole point of Romans pretty much 9, 10, and 11, is Paul showing how the Jews have missed the mark. The Jews as a group have been seeking their salvation through works, through the law, through keeping the law, and doing all the ritual things that they needed to do. This is the Pharisaical school that had taken over the nation as bedrock, right? In, in terms of their understanding. And he's saying, this is not it. It's about faith. The whole point of the chapter is to make that point. Trying to get the Jews to understand, it's not by the works. It's not by this ritual that you do. It's not by the temple system or the purity codes or any of that. It's by faith that connects with grace that is the salvation. Exactly what he said in Ephesians 2. Now, it wouldn't make sense within that context of that argument that he is trying to get across to then list two works, two things, two conditions that you need to meet, right? So what's going on here? Right at verse 5, Paul says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And now he's quoting here from Deuteronomy. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into the heavens, that to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So what is he saying here? First off, if we take a look, he's saying that our righteousness and our salvation comes from inside out. Do you see where that is? you see where he's saying that? From inside out, not outside in. Not from the keeping of all these outside codes and laws. It's coming from the inside out. With the heart, a person believes. Right? This is what he's trying to get across. Jesus says exactly the same thing in the negative. When the Pharisees and the scribes came to him and they're saying, why aren't you keeping the purity codes? He was breaking some of the purity codes in terms of what he was eating. And he said, it's not what goes into a man or a person that defiles him or her. It's what comes out. Remember when he said that? It's what comes out that either defiles or what comes out that gives us the sign that there is salvation going on, that there is redemption going on, that there is transformation going on. 
It's something that happens deep inside and comes out. What comes out of the mouth shows the inner state of being, which is what the prophets and Jesus and Paul are all concerned with. It's not about simply obeying rituals or rules, the state of the heart. Now, he's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy. And whenever you see capitalization of of lines in the New Testament, that means it's a quotation of the Old Testament. And if you have a commentary, you can see where it's coming from. Well, this comes from Deuteronomy 30, starting at verse 11. And this is Moses after he's given the law, after he comes down from the mountain and he gives the law to the people, he's trying to get them to understand because it seems so restrictive to them. It seems so impossible to them. But he tells them, this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven. It's not up in heaven somewhere that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and to make us hear it? That we, may, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and to make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth, in your heart, that you may observe it. Look what Moses is saying here. The word is near. The word is actually within us. It's easy to understand It's never remote, never out of reach. It's within us, as near as our mouth, as near as our heart. Jesus said exactly the same thing, didn't he, at Luke 17? He said, hey, don't look for kingdom out there someplace to be observed. Right? It's not going to come from that direction. You're not going to be able to see, look, here it is, or there it is. The kingdom is within you, among you, in your midst Same idea. Kingdom moves from inside to outside. The word that Moses is talking about moves from inside to outside. It's not a specific thing that we can say or believe that saves us. It's the trust that comes from this intimate relationship that we have from the inside out with God as we're transformed to boldly and fearlessly believe and speak out. And this reveals our salvation. God bless Eugene Peterson. God bless his cotton-picking heart, right? Let's read the same passage again. This is Romans 10, 5 to 10, from the message. And listen how he translates this, paraphrases it. And I just gave you the end, the last two verses, because I didn't have room. But... Just listen to how he says the same thing. Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law code to live right right before God soon discovers it's not so easy. Every detail of life regulated by fine print. But trusting God to shape the right living in us is a different story. No precarious climb up to heaven to recruit the Messiah. No dangerous descent into hell to rescue the Messiah. So what exactly was Moses saying? The word that saves is right here, as near as the tongue in your mouth, as close as the heart in your chest. It's the word of faith that welcomes God to go work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Say the welcoming word to God. That's how he translates, confess with your mouth. Say the welcoming word to God. Jesus is my master, embracing body, and soul 
God's work of doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. You're not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God, trusting him to do it for you. That's salvation. With your whole being, you embrace God, setting things right, and then you say it right out loud. God has set everything right between him and me. I love that. Because we can't say that Jesus is master. We can't really say that and mean it, that Jesus is Lord, without the humility, the vulnerability, the dependence of real submission. And we can't believe in our heart in the impossible work of God, any of the impossible works of God, including raising Jesus, without the trust from long-standing relationship, intimacy with God. Jesus said the kingdom is within. It moves from inside out. Kingdom is the experience of the liberation, the spiritual freedom that we're talking about here, that the Jews defined as salvation. Now, Paul is still saying that our faith and our trust is the engine, just like he did in Ephesians. There's no difference here, because it's not about the works. You see that? He is consistent with Ephesians because everything is moving from the inside out. In this case, it's almost as if Jesus is Lord is the result of the transformation, not the cause of it. Believing with our heart in the impossible works of God is the result of the intimacy of our relationship with him, not the cause of it. But what the heck is he talking about when he's talking about working out our salvation? There's another bridge we got to cross here. Now see again how the passage all around that one-liner helps to define what he's talking about. So Philippians 2, starting at verse 3, the whole thing is in your handouts and up on the screens. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's he saying here? He's saying that this salvation is not bestowed because we do the right things, say the right things, obey the right things. It's the state of being free from fear and one completely connected with God that realized, as we emptied ourselves as Jesus did, this oneness, this connection, is realized as we empty ourselves as Jesus did. Let go 
of the standing that we think we have and allow ourselves to move into that place of the anavim. Again, that poor in spiritness, that servant of allness, connected to allness, that Jesus exemplified at every turn, taught at every turn. The state of our salvation is realized in this fear and trembling, which is another idiom, a Hebrew idiom, for the state of being anavim, for the same state of humility and vulnerability, but with gratitude, right? With trust. Let's let Peterson come to our rescue again. Let's read the same passage. Again, the last two verses are in your handouts. But at verse 3, he says, Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless and obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death, and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. And because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far above anyone or anything ever, so that all created beings on heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all, to the glorious honor of God the Father. What I'm getting at, friends, is that you should simply keep on doing what you've been doing from the beginning. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience. Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation. That's the way he translates work out your salvation. Be energetic in your life of salvation. Reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. A little different? Is it starting to move everything in a single direction? I hope. I know it's a lot of words. It's dense stuff. Paul writes so densely. There's so much packed in here. And to make it even a little bit more hopefully clear, maybe confusing. The first time he uses the word work, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, that word means to work fully, to accomplish or finish. All right? But the second and third time that he uses it, when he says that energy is God's energy, or up here, for it is God's work that is in you, both to will and to work in his good pleasure, that's energeo in Greek. It's the word we get energy from. And so it means something that it's about an active and efficient flow, a process that actually makes something happen. And so you can see even, you know, we use the same word in both halves of that one-liner. The differences in the original language help us to understand. Actively matching our energy with God's energy within ourselves 
completes our salvation. That's what he's saying. If we can let our energy move with God's energy in the direction of spirit, it completes us. Paul is completely consistent in both Philippians and Romans with what he said in Ephesians. That we're saved by God's energetic grace through our faith. Our faith, which is our energetic connection and partnering with God's grace. This is the crux of Paul's entire ministry. This is what he's always trying to get across. That we need to leave law and ritual and works behind as we move into this faith-filled relationship that brings the trust that changes everything. This is where he's trying to get us to go. Completely consistent. So faith for Paul is what allows us to let go, to sell everything, as Jesus said. Everything that we cling to, everything that we rely on, so that we can really begin to trust with this dependence and this vulnerability. In this way, faith is a process of subtraction before we get anything added. Before there's any addition, there's the subtraction, the letting go to Anavim. So, here's a question. How do we attain salvation? Well, if we read Paul right here, if we can rely on Eugene Peterson here, and what we know of the Hebrews here, and the way they looked at life, and all of Jesus' teaching, in which Paul's letters have to move into that context, then we don't add it to ourselves. That's not the way that we attain salvation. We don't go out and get it and add it to ourselves. We subtract everything in ourselves that blocks the realization that the salvation of God is already here in the same way that kingdom is already here. That God is love. God is salvation. If he is love, he is salvation and redemption and forgiveness and healing and transformation. He is those things. They already pre-exist. They predate us. They are here and available. And they can't be anything else because God can't be anything else than what he is. And that we came from this love. We came from this salvation. We came from this pure freedom. It's who we were before we lost our way. You know, the, the word for Eucharist, the first word for Eucharist in the Greek, which I know I've said before and you may recall, is anamnesis. Okay, we get our word amnesia from forgetting. Anamnesis is unforgetting. And so when Jesus says, remember me, he's literally saying anamnesis. He's saying, unforget. Unforget what? <laughs> unforget who we think we are. Unforget, remember who we really are by ingesting into ourselves all that Jesus is. Because Jesus is that connection. Jesus is that full, fearless vulnerability. He is Anavim. We were that at the beginning. We lost it. Now we have to unforget it. We have to remember who we really were. We just passed Christmas. Christmas is a time where Jesus is presented 
in an unrecognizable form. If you're looking for God, if you're looking for a king, you're not going to look in a stable. You're not going to look for a poor baby from impoverished parents. How do you recognize that status in Jesus under those terms? How does that happen? We don't see it in us anymore because we have lost the recognizable qualities of who we really are. Think of all the fairy tales. Think, you know, so many fairy tales and myths and legends that have the same theme to them. Do you know the, the Grimm's um, fairy tale story of the, the uh, frog prince? You remember that one? You know, there's a curse on a prince and he's turned into a frog. And the princess is playing and she loses her ball in the pond. And the frog says, well, I'll get it for you. But if I do, then you've got to be my friend. And you got to have me for dinner, and you got to read me a story at night, and you got to kiss me goodnight. And she just thoughtlessly says, okay, and then she tries to blow him off. But there he is knocking at the door at dinner time, you know. And the, her father wisely tells her, you got to keep your promises. And so the frog comes and has dinner with him. And then he goes up to uh, bed at night, and she has to read to him. But when she finally kisses him goodnight is when the curse is broken, and he turns back into a prince. Isn't that a similar story to Beauty and the Beast? Where the beast has a curse and is now this monstrous figure, but he's really a noble inside. And it is the love of the woman, the true love, that brings out his true qualities. Even Cinderella, you know, even though she really is a, a, a poor servant girl, but when the prince sees her all dolled up, you know, the whole point of the story is he has to find her again with a humble exterior. One where he can't recognize what he saw at the ball. This theme that runs through so many of our myths and stories and persists, these stories just keep coming back to us. Think about how many movies, contemporary movies, you've seen that have the same theme, right? Someone who is a noble is forgotten who they are. And through some series of, of, of events, they remember. They have those qualities in them, but they didn't realize it. They're li- living some life that was really beneath them until they realize who they are. We're all doing that. That's our story. That's why we keep telling that story to ourselves over and over again, because it's our story. We are royalty. We are nobility. We are children of God. We have that connection. We have that seat at the table, and we've lost our way and forgotten who we are. Jesus is trying to wake us up. He's trying to kiss our frog, literally, so that we can come back out and be who we are. Wow. How do we attain salvation? How do we wake up? How do we kiss our frog? Well, we have to follow Jesus in the sense that he meant it. Not in name only, not ritualistically, but by becoming his way of living life, the way he was the way himself. Jesus said, I don't follow this way. I am the way. Follow me. Become the way as I have become the way. And something is going to change in you. We have to follow Jesus by becoming the way, losing ourselves, losing our belief about ourselves in this love of simply being present, being connected with each other. Learning to be fully who we are in this connection, in this service to the people in our path. Wednesday night, I told a story and kind of went over well. <laughs> but it was a story of a, 
an Eastern king who is trying to find the master of a monastery. And as he travels to the monastery, and he gets there, and at the gate of the monastery, there's a garden, and he sees the gardener there, and he asks, you know, well, who are you? He says, I'm the gardener. He says, well, I'm looking for the master. He says, well, I'm the gardener. He says, well, where's the master? I don't have a master. All right, well, this conversation's getting nowhere. So he goes past him and goes deep into the forest, finds the monastery, and inside the monastery, there's a monk there in flowing robes, and he's at his meditation. And when he sees the king, he greets him, and he says, you know, I'm looking for the master. And he says, well, I'm the master. He says, wait a minute. I thought you were the gardener. He says, no, I'm the master. He says, when I'm the gardener, I am totally and completely the gardener. And when I am the master, I'm totally and completely the master. And if you come tomorrow when I'm fishing at the pond, I will be the fisherman, totally and completely the fisherman. You know, This idea of being completely who we are at the moment. When I write, I'm a writer. When I run, I'm a runner. Right? And when I'm a happy person... I'm a happy person if I allow myself to be. And I'm a Christian when I'm Christ-like. And I'm a follower of Jesus when I choose like Jesus. When I completely become that, that's who I am. That's what wakes us up. That's what kisses the frog. That's what allows us to see ourselves as we really are when we allow ourselves to be completely immersed in what we're doing at the moment, not following rules, waiting to be saved, accepted by somebody out there, but in full humility, in full gratitude, in fearless vulnerability, living and choosing each moment the salvation and the acceptance that is already and has always been here. God has already made his choice about us. He's chosen us. He gave us everything there is to give. And what he's telling us now, it's our turn. What are you going to choose? How do you attain salvation? Choose it. Live it. Immerse yourself in its reality and become it so that you know that you know that you know there is nothing to be afraid of because of who your God is. That's salvation. Let's pray. Oh, here we are, Father. We're presenting ourselves to you this morning. We've come here to be in connection with each other And to find maybe a deeper point of reference, a deeper view of the possibility of our relationship with you. But above all, Lord, help us to just relax into each moment and just enjoy it. Right now, we're members of the effect because we're here being members of the effect. We're members of this community. We're friends because we're here doing that. Allow us to be completely that, with no reservation and no holds barred, so that we can find another bit of our missing personage, another bit of who we really are. Help us more and more to wake up. 
and to see that everything we need you've already given us, all the love and acceptance we could ever hope for is exceeded in every moment that we breathe. Thank you for being that, Lord. Thank you for loving us that way. Never let us forget we can only love in return because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.